Welcome to Lion and Lamb. By the way, there's a number of faces I've not met before, folks I haven't chatted with. Uh, you might be here because your own home church hasn't reopened yet. We're glad you're here. You're here for other purposes. We're glad you're here. So we hope you're encouraged and go away with something God gives you. The thing when the church meets is in Christ's presence, there is liberty. It's in Jesus' presence that we find life. One of the things for sure, it's our hope that anytime we've met together, we go away feeling like we've met the Lord, heard something from Him, and also given something back to Him in worship, by way of worship. Briefly, two things before I get into the message proper. The first is, was March 22nd was the first message that was done in this church, specifically with the thought of the COVID-19 virus in mind. And do you happen, if you were here then, do you happen to remember what the theme of that message was? It was called Lessons from the Desert. We started in 1 Corinthians 10, we went back to Deuteronomy, and we saw basically God's warnings to God's people Israel in their wilderness wanderings not to grumble or complain. We said basically it's a given as we go into uncharted waters and as life is turned upside down for us, one of the lessons for sure is we want to cultivate a heart of thankfulness and trust in God that God's still in control even though the world around us isn't, and we were never in control anyway, were we? So that, that thought of how are we doing just with cultivating and maintaining an attitude of thanksgiving, of trust, of confidence, no matter what's going on around us. That's my first query to you. The second, just to bring up COVID-19 again, I almost don't want to say nothing about it because otherwise it's the elephant in the room, right? So this, this came from the Federalist my son-in-law Steve sent to me. Just bring this up to mention and just say we're aware of what's going on. This says in part, on Friday, President Trump said churches and houses of worship are essential, in quotation marks, you know, everything depends on your doors being open these days on whether you've been considered essential or non-essential. Called on governors nationwide to allow them to open this weekend. And I just tell you, in some states, not this weekend, but next, churches will be opening, I know in California, I believe in Michigan as well, against government mandate because they believe they're called to by God. Their consciences say to them, we're not ultimately serving the government, and we don't think what the government's requiring us is appropriate biblically. We believe God's calling us to meet. Now, others are not. Others are not. So there's, there's differences here. But that essential quality, Trump talked about overriding governor's... Uh, citations of some places, houses of worship included as non-essential, that he would override that. He doesn't have the ability to do that. I think it was a talking point for him. But the criticism he, le he leveled was this. He criticized some governors who have deemed liquor stores and abortion clinics as essential, but not churches. And that's been true around the country. Winding down this article, and this is what I want to leave you with, the author of the article quotes Thomas Jefferson. He says, the right not to be discriminated against because of your religious beliefs, or lack thereof, is indispensable to our civic life, pandemic or not. At the end of Thomas Jefferson's life, in typical fashion, he designed his own tombstone, and he wrote his own epitaph. Quote, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Now, the author says... It's easy to see why Jefferson included the Declaration, which gave birth to a new nation, and the University of Virginia, which was and is a monument to his genius, 
But why include a state statute for religious freedom? He concludes, because Jefferson understood what others may have forgotten or rejected. Quote, our rulers can have authority over such natural rights only as we have submitted to them. The rights that they have authority to give us are only the ones delegated. This is from the guy who authored the Declaration of Independence. This is Jefferson again. He says, the rights of conscience we never submitted. We could not submit. We are answerable for them to God. And this is striking because Jefferson, of course, didn't believe in the integrity of the scriptures, didn't believe in the atonement, didn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, but still said no one can or should give their conscience over to any other person or to government. And that's something to think about today. Yeah. So, so within the church and among believers, you and I know and love, some, according to their conscience, will not meet until their governor says it's okay to. And others, according to their conscience, will meet defying government orders because they believe before God that's what they're called to. So in the midst of knowing Christians disagree about the wisdom and where the lines of conscience should be drawn, both desiring to honor God by living submissive to his word ultimately, it's just incumbent on us, Romans 14, not to look down on others who don't hold our opinion or our judgment of things, and do what James said. James said, remember, it's the royal law, the law of love, that's supposed to guide us in all things. So we certainly live in awareness, challenging times, absolutely. There are limits to what government can expect others to, to follow through on. And you've got historic elements of this, not only in American history, but elsewhere. But, but with all that going on, how are we doing on not grumbling, not complaining, trusting God, believing the best, thinking the best? <laughs> Andrew says, we're not doing well. Okay, so we're encouraged this morning. <laughs> Back towards faithfulness. Okay. Okay. Yeah, wherever we are on all that. Okay, well, let me pray. and We'll get back in to the word. Father, we do submit ourselves before you, and we acknowledge that you're God. And Lord, it's life to know you. It's life to know Christ. It's life to know our sins covered in the blood of Jesus, your Holy Spirit given uh, eternity in your presence to come. And we ask that you would sanctify us a little bit more this morning, Father, by showing us something from your word that helps us in these days, that confronts our, our fears, Lord, for some, prejudices for others, pride for some. Uh, show us where we need to hear from you. Uh, help us to walk away encouraged this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, names are important. Uh, I met a guy that I now consider a good friend, Stephen, last week. So this is the first time I'd seen Stephen here. And Stephen said he used to go by Steve. But then he thought about the importance of his name, and his parents given him the biblical name Stephan or Stephanos, a crown or a crown of victory, a wreath. And he said, you know, I chose to go by Stephen again. Names are important. And parents usually give names, they're thoughtfully, you know, for their kids. It's the meaning or perhaps it's some family history. Oftentimes what you find, though, is that given names make way for nicknames. So uh, sometimes you'll be known for the name your parents given you throughout your life, and other times you won't. Something else will occlude the name your parents gave you. So think of Honest Abe. 
You don't even have to say that's President Abraham Lincoln. Honest Abe, we all know. And, you know, that name, in part at least, rises from the story in which he's a store clerk. He accidentally overcharges a customer six cents. When, when the store winds down that evening, he walks three miles to return six cents. Honest Abe. You know, if you look at Babe Ruth, the, the name attached to him as a slugger isn't obvious or apparent, but the story goes that when Babe Ruth started in the minor leagues at his first, first city, I think it was Baltimore, he was being mocked by some of the older players. And one of the coaches said, uh, uh, take it easy on Ruth. He's one of the owner's babes. He's the apple of his eye. He's the darling of the owner because he sees such potential in him. And the name Babe stuck. And, and later, if you've seen movies like Sandlot, you know, the Sultan of Swat was another one that identified him because of his prowess in home runs. Uh, think of uh, Storman Norman. Do you know who Storman Norman is? Schwarzkopf. Probably don't even have to say his name because of the shock and awe invasion of the Gulf War and just, just pushing all opposition down, just like a storm coming in. Uh, do you know who the Iron Lady is? Some of it, This is for older people, by the way. Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, yep. From the 80s, British Prime Minister who had a will of iron, really, and was just one crazy good uh, politician back in the days of Reagan here as well. So, so names are important, and sometimes what you'll find is the nickname someone earns or is given is significant because it identifies some particular or key element in your life. And that's certainly what you'll see uh, in our text this morning. And we'll try again, uh, hopefully. Nicholas, you may have to advance for me. I'm, I'm just not feeling the love. Thank you. Thank you. So this is the 58th message in the Heroes and Villains series. And if you haven't heard any of the former ones, heroes in the sense that we're using, these are biblical figures that we see some element of Christ-like faithfulness in. So as Christians, we say the life of Christ is in us. We're not just old people made a little better. We were crucified in Christ. Our old self was crucified, Romans 6 and Galatians 2 say, so that we're a new person. We have a new birth. We, and that new birth is based on the very life of Christ. So when we see those heroes of the faith in the biblical record, we're really looking to see what does Christ-like faithfulness in their lives look like? What can we take away from that? When we look at villains, we're looking at folks that have displayed faithlessness towards God. What are those key characteristics or behaviors that we want to avoid? This morning, we're looking at a guy whose nickname defined him. He was renamed. His nickname defined him, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So if I ask you, do you know who Joseph of Cyprus is? Do you know who Joe is, Joseph of Cyprus? I'll bet in here I'd be surprised if more than a few, if this rings a bell. Because he's not known by his given name. But he's an important, in fact, he's a key member of Acts. He's a key figure in the New Testament. But it's not because of his given name. So he's mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts, five times in Paul's epistles, but by his nickname, which is... Barnabas. So his given name is Joseph, Joseph of Cyprus. But nobody knows him by that name because of his nickname, because his nickname was so key in identifying who he was and what he was like. Barnabas means son of encouragement. We'll see this in a moment in Acts 4, verse 36. And that quality that Barnabas really embodied is what we want to go away thinking about this morning. And it's this, faithfulness requires giving encouragement to others. 
Compared to some of the other lessons we've had, this might sound like overstatement, but I hope that you'll agree with me by the time we're done that it's not. That if Christ's life is in me, faithfulness requires me to see giving encouragement to others as a given. As much as faith and courage we talked about last week, being an encouragement to others is an aspect of Christ's life in us, as we'll see here in just a moment. And we're talking about encouragement. I want to flesh this out a bit, as we did courage last week. In the English, it's in, it's to put in courage. So I'm pouring courage back in to someone. In the Greek, the term comes from paraklesis, and that has more the sense of I come alongside someone, I put my arm around somebody who's flagging, they're, they're fatigued, they're weary, and they just need somebody to come up and encourage them, exhort them, help them back up again. Synonyms include things like exhort, entreat, beseech, console, strengthen, and comfort. And if you look up the Greek paraklesis in the New Testament, you'll see it's all over the place. Uh, and it's used, these synonyms, it's, it's translated more than just encouragement. It's translated a number of ways. It's a relatively plastic term. But it always has the sense of, of someone else being benefited from your or mine interaction with them. So Barnabas earned his nickname because he was consistently an encouragement to others. So last week, we looked at the life of Stephen, and Stephen's life was a paradigm of courage. And we said to live out Christ-like faithfulness now or anytime requires courage. But what we see today in the life of Barnabas is that Christ-like faithfulness calls us to give that courage to other believers when they're falling down, when they're worn out. So you got to have courage, but what do you do when your courage is gone? What do you do when you've, you've fought the battles, you've run the race as far as you know, and you're worn out, and you're not encouraged, you're discouraged, you're depressed, you feel like, I'm never going to win. You need someone to come up and put courage back in you. And that's what Barnabas did, and that's why he got that name. And that's what you'll see in the life of Christ. You and I are called to be, be those who come alongside each other to put courage back in so that like Stephen, we can stand courageously. But at times, you'll find you either need your call to put courage back into someone else, or you'll find that you need someone to come alongside you and give you courage again. I want to talk a little bit, too, about how this occurs. I think sometimes we have a, a, a view of encouragement, giving encouragement to others that's not necessarily particularly helpful. You might go up to someone, and your motive, you see they're down, they, they need some encouragement, so you're going to go encourage them. But sometimes all that means is we just give them our opinion, and that's not encouragement. We just, we know what they need, and we just give them what they need, and we may be absolutely short of the mark. And I say this because my wife and I have been on the receiving end of encouragement from others. And those people, you know what, they went away, they thought, I was such a blessing to them, wasn't I? You know, we're, we're thinking, man, I hope I never see you again. You know, I, I can't take this kind of encouragement. So how do we put new courage back into someone? There's some key elements along that line. You can't encourage another person. And this is, um, I want to focus here primarily. Uh, you stand up on a Sunday morning and you teach and someone says, I'm encouraged. And I'm like, I have no idea that you're encouraged or not, right? 
because it's a group discussion. What I'm really focusing on this morning is not the group discussion. It's personal, primarily one-on-one interaction. So that's the focus for how we're talking about that this morning. So I can't encourage another person generally, apart from knowing what God wants from them and what their challenge is. I have to have knowledge about what's going on for them because otherwise I'm just sharing an opinion or I'm just speaking broadly or generally, but I may not be speaking to the thing they need to hear. I think there's three things that go along with this. The first is encouragement needs to be personal, needs to be personal. If you're discouraged or disheartened, if someone that you know and know they care about you, if they just come up and sit down next to you and put put their hand on your knee or their arm around your shoulder, you may feel encouraged just because they're with you, just because their presence is with you, because them being with you just says, hey, I, I care. Sometimes that would be that'd be enough. That would be encouraging. But it should be personal. And usually presence is a big deal. Uh, have you guys noticed how fun it is to get together on Sunday morning face to face? You know, I was I was tickled last week just to see people here when we got over the weirdness of the first week back. It's like, what do you do? Do you, do you shake? Do you not? Do you bump? What? Second week, people were so much freer and they're just delighted to be in each other's presence. Encouragement requires some aspect of being personal, of your presence. And generally, that means face-to-face. And that's why in days like this, encouragement is particularly needed because people have been so isolated. Now, if you tell me uh, you can encourage through Zoom, email, text, Facebook, you go down the list. I'm fine with all that. I'm good with it. None of it replaces, though, personal presence. There's nothing like personal presence. So we do what we can. But personal presence is a big, big deal. So personal presence. The other thing is purposes. These are three P's. This is what people who teach like to do. Personal presence. Purposes. What are God's purposes for the person that I want to encourage? What is it? What's the element in their life that needs to be spoken to that they need courage for? What's God's purpose for them? I need to know something about that. And the last is promises. God's promises. What can I either share verbally from God's Word? He'll open this with how firm a foundation. What truth from God's Word applies to their situation? And I might share that. So I might share a scripture that has to do with their situation that could give them encouragement. That would be good. But guys, I can also pray God's promises for them. Sometimes a Bible verse is the last thing someone wants to hear. I don't have to share the Bible verse with them. I can. I want to be sensitive to that. But I can also pray that. Even if I don't have a chance to share it, I can pray God's promises for them. So I think those are important qualities when we're thinking about how do we encourage each other. Being a resource of encouragement is a key characteristic of the divine life of Christ in us. So being a resource of encouragement to others is part of Christ's life in us. Being in need of regular doses of encouragement is a key characteristic of our humanity. And what you'll find is you'll be on the receiving and the giving end. It's never always one way. You're never always giving encouragement. You're never always receiving encouragement. It's meant to be in both directions. And I want to give some instances of this. I want to sell you on the concept first that God means for us to be sources of encouragement. God encourages. And you'll see this through the scriptures. This is one example, Deuteronomy 31 
The Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous. You shall bring the people of Israel into the land. Be strong and courageous. Moses, my servant, is gone. He's dead. And you're going to be tempted to feel timid and fearful because you got to lead this host of people into the country. And man, there's giants and there's walled cities. And he's feeling it. God wouldn't say this if he didn't know he needed to hear it. Three times in Joshua 1, you hear exactly the same thing. And God's telling before the work begins, I was with Moses, I'll be with you in the same way. And you'll succeed. So he's encouraging a guy who needs it because he's facing obstacles he knows he's not up for. And God says, you be strong and you be courageous because I'm with you and you will succeed. God to Joshua. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, your translation probably reads the same as NASB or ESV. Paul there talks to the Corinthians and he says, uh, the God of all comforts, uh, that the God that we know and serve, he's the God of all comforts. He comforts us so that we can turn around and comfort you. And we say, well, comfort's not quite the same as encouragement, but the Greek term is the same term. It's translated comfort here. It's translated encouragement elsewhere. The God you and I claim as Father, Christ we claim as Savior, He is the source of all comfort and encouragement. So if Christ's life is in us, and He's the source of all comfort and encouragement, comfort and encouragement from us to others should be a given because it's part of His makeup. It's part of His presence in us. It should be a given. King David encouraged his son Solomon. Again, David's the epitome of kingship. And now Solomon's probably about 20, and he's going to take over dad's realm, and he's going to build God's temple, and he is overwhelmed. And David says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. 1 Chronicles 22, and again, uh, 1 Chronicles 20. By the way, if you get a chance, those are just great, great encouraging passages. Jesus encouraged others specifically, and I've mentioned both of these recently, Luke 22 You remember Jesus says to the disciples, you're all going to fall away. And Peter says, not me. Jesus, no, you too. But this is what he says, and I love this. So he knows what Peter's going to do. Peter doesn't, but Jesus does. By the way, does any of your sin and failure surprise God? (laughs) He, He knows the end from the beginning. We don't do anything that surprises him. Peter's failure does not surprise Jesus. It surprises Peter. But Jesus has prepared him for it. And he says, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. You're going to fail, but your faith won't fail. Because I've prayed for you ahead of time. And when you're recovered, then you go and you encourage your brothers because they're going to fail too. But you see the same thing. And then in Acts 23.11, last example, you remember the, there was a price on Paul's head when he was, went to Jerusalem and then he was arrested. And you remember the group of Jews, they're under a vow, we don't eat or drink until we've killed Paul. And so he gets it and, he, and Jesus shows up to him though and says, take courage, that's the same thought, Paul, don't, don't let down, take courage, you've testified for me in Jerusalem and you'll testify in Rome. Paul knows there's a price on my head, all these guys want to kill me, I'm not even going to get out of Israel alive. Jesus tells him, you will. Against anything that's been cooked up for you by the Jews, you're going to get to Rome and you'll testify for me there too. So be encouraged. Five times Christians specifically are commanded in the New Testament to encourage each other. Those references are on your study sheet. And guys, the use of the term is so prevalent, I didn't bother to come up with the number of times 
It's used in the New Testament. It is everywhere. It's a huge, huge issue. Chronologically, we're going to pick up on Barnabas here. About 36 AD to 55 AD or so, right at the beginning of the life of the early church. And then he bows out before Paul's second missionary journey. But he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9. So we're guessing he's probably on the scene from the middle 30s to the middle 50s AD. He's got about 20 years of the life of the early church there. And into the scriptures finally, I know you're saying, okay, Acts 4. So when we meet Barnabas for the first time, you see why he earned his nickname. You see from the very start when he's introduced, they're already calling him Barnabas, not Joseph, because of what he's already characterized by. This is Acts 4, 32 through 37. I'll start at verse 34. But the setting, you remember, is Pentecost happened. And these folks have come to Jerusalem for the festival. They got saved. They're hanging out. They've run out of money. They never intended to stay this long. And the early church, they're just trying to take care of each other. So picking up at verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, thus Joseph who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, a native of the island of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. The first time you meet this guy, he's doing whatever he can to be a help and an encouragement to the other saints there in Jerusalem. It tells us his name, and then it shows us why he's named son of encouragement. He's already in the fray, selling property to make sure others are taken care of. Go a couple chapters forward, Acts 11, uh, starting at verse, uh, this goes from 19 to 26. I'll jump in at verse 22. When leaders in Jerusalem heard that Gentiles in Antioch had become believers or followers in Jesus, you know, this was all unlooked for the, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem and Israel. They had no idea what God was up to, and they hear these Gentiles are now believers, followers of Jesus. So they want to send someone to them. So it says they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So they know these believers, these new believers there, they need someone who can teach them truth. Barnabas can do that. And they need someone who can encourage them. That's what they need. And Barnabas is the first guy on their list. So it says they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And listen, he exhorted them all. He encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So their lives have been turned upside down. They're believers in a Jewish Messiah, which how many of those Gentiles ever thought they were going to be like Jews following a Jewish Messiah? No way. But that's what they find themselves doing. And Barnabas exhorts them. It's parakaleo. It's the same word family as paraclete or Paraclesis, it's the same word family. He urged them, he exhorted them with steadfast purpose to remain faithful to God. That's exactly what he's doing again. He's pouring courage in them. Your lives are turned upside down. You're still figuring this thing out. That's okay. Stay faithful. Keep going in that race. He exhorted them. And then it describes him. And think of Barnabas in relation to Stephen from last week. It says, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. 
You remember Jesus said in John 14, 16, that he would send the disciples a helper. And do you remember what that Greek term is? It's paraclete. It's from the same word family again. Barnabas is filled with the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside others to help them, to build them up, and to encourage them. The life of Christ in Barnabas is absolutely true to the character of Jesus because that's his characteristic. It's to give others encouragement. Like the Holy Spirit himself, Barnabas is a helper. He's come alongside those new believers to help them up. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit and of Christ-like faithfulness that took the form of encouraging others. And I think along that line, because Christians have the Spirit of Christ, when we see others in need, the impulse that maybe we're dull to sometimes, or maybe we feel that impulse but we don't follow through on it, I should go up and just say something to someone. I've got a friend who says he prays every Sunday, every week actually, every morning he gets up, Lord, show me my divine appointments. When he goes to church, he's looking for people who need encouragement because he wants to be cued. He's cueing himself, okay, I'm looking for people who need encouragement. The, the Spirit will give us the impulse to encourage others if we're sensitive to that. And I think a lot of times we turn it off and we just think, I'm busy, that's really not from the Lord, that's just a crazy idea I have, that won't be meaningful to them anyway, et cetera, et cetera. When no, that's probably, that impulse is probably exactly the Holy Spirit encouraging you to encourage someone else just as you saw that in the life of Barnabas. Verse 25, it doesn't end there. Verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people there. So Barnabas, who's shown up and encouraged those folks, he's looking the scene over, and I think he, it goes something like this. Uh, they need a lot of teaching, and they need a lot of encouragement, and I'm just one guy, but I know someone else. I know someone else who could teach them and could encourage them too. And so I'll go get him and I'll bring him in. One of the things about encouragement is this. It usually doesn't abide by itself. When you encourage someone else, you'll, you'll often find that what you also want to do is get others to encourage others as well. And oftentimes what you'll see also, your area of spiritual gift, and I'm, I'm, this is parsing, we're stopping one thought, starting another, your area of spiritual gift, you'll usually want to um, not only bless others with the way God's equipped you to, but usually you have the benefit of others become more like you because they've received something from your spiritual gift. So if you've been on the receiving end of someone who's really good at encouragement, you will not only feel encouraged, what you'll find is you will want to encourage others too. If you hang out with someone whose gift is teaching and they open up Scripture to you, you feel like, I want more of that, and I want to help others get what I got. So, so what you see is that his encouragement, Barnabas's, does not remain alone. His encouragement is also to encourage others to come in and do the same thing he's doing. He's aptly named son of encouragement. It's what you see forever going on in his life. You know, when you're down and discouraged, I know this by personal experience, you don't necessarily need a teacher. Did you know that? So some people, Romans 12, 8, some people are gifted as encouragers. They are. And my family's assured me I'm not. 
And I don't understand that. Where's that? Repeatedly. You know how it goes. Mike's a teacher. And my wife used to tell me, please don't come home and plumb and square us. You know, is it plumb? Is it square? Because that's the way I see life. And it's like, okay, this is the truth you need to hear. What's the problem? Here's the truth. This is what Scripture says. And it's like, it's not encouraging. Okay. When someone's discouraged, when they're down, they want encouragement. They don't necessarily want to know what you know. They need encouragement for that moment. And so, you know, if you have somebody come up and encourage you, there's nothing you appreciate more. And again, sometimes it's just personal presence. It's just someone saying, I know what you're going through and I'm praying for you. And by the way, when we say we pray for each other, I hope that doesn't sound minimalistic because it's not. Our family has a, has a little uh, habit that uh, one of my daughters particularly will sign off emails, P-T-E-F, past tense prayed for. That prayer is no small deal, and it's not a sop we throw to each other, I hope, that we really pray for each other, and God's in the business of answering prayer, especially prayer according to his word. Praying for others, showing up, being there for them. None of us, by the way, are always on the receiving end. Sometimes we're on the giving end. Sometimes we're on the receiving end. Paul said in Romans 1 verse 12, he said he wanted to visit the Romans. And he said this, we'll be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. You'll encourage me by what God's doing in your life. And I'll encourage you by what I can impart to you as well. This is not, this this example does not rise to the level I wish it did, but my senior year of high school, we were in the state regional basketball tournament. And the first night, the first game, which we won, I severely sprained my ankle. You know, I rolled it and I've sprained my ankles many times, really painful. So I go home that night, ice bath, you know, keep the swelling down. I walk on it just to keep it mobile. You know, get up the next morning though, you know, all hope is gone. It's swollen, it's black and blue. I wrap it, I get on my crutches, which I have. This is not my first ankle sprain. Go to school the next day, got a game that night. And I end up in the locker room later that afternoon, and uh, one of the guys from the team, he never called me Mike, always helping. He says, helping, you can play in the game tonight. And I'm like, you have no idea. I said, I can't put weight on my foot. He said, it's not broken. You could play. And I thought, I can't. But he was persistent. He said, helping, you you can do this. And so, (laughs) so I did. So I got off my crutches. They taped my ankle up nice and tight. You know, I wrapped it. And guys, it was ugly. It was not like a movie. There was no grand, glorious music. And Mike didn't have a great game. Mike fell flat on his face. Literally, literally. A breakaway. I'm going to jam. Breakaway. And I fell flat on my face at the free throw line. Uh, It was ugly. But he came along and he told me I could do something I, I knew I couldn't. And he was right. I could do it because he told me I could. That, I, that otherwise I knew in my mind, I can't even put weight on this thing. But he's like, no, you can. It was his encouragement that helped me do something I otherwise had was absolutely certain. Can't do it. He told me I could. He poured courage into me. He gave me confidence, and I did. And we won the game the night, that night too. Joseph of Cyprus came to be known as Barnabas because it accurately described his Christ-like character in pouring new courage back into others who needed it. There's another element to this that I want to spend uh, 
little bit of time on, and it's this. Uh, if I say, uh, Jesse talked to me after church, and Jesse encouraged me, and, and my thought of encouragement there is, Jesse, uh, we had a short conversation, and Jesse may have come up and said, I prayed for you, and I, I say, I'm encouraged. And sometimes that's all encouragement is, right? It, it, it could be a hand on the shoulder, it could be a brief quip, it could be I prayed for you, it could be something that little. But often what you'll find is encouragement also has a longer view sometimes. The need for encouragement sometimes requires more than sort of a quick high and by or you're prayed for or tell me what's going on. Sometimes it requires a longer investment. And that's what you see in Barnabas's life also. Uh, this is from Acts 9. You remember the story is Barnabas, or excuse me, Saul, who was there when Stephen was killed. You know, God knocks this guy down on the road to Damascus. He says, you're mine. You're going to live my life, my way. And, and Saul eventually becomes Paul the apostle, and he's preaching the gospel right away. But trouble occurs when he goes to Jerusalem. So Acts 9, you remember when Saul of Tarsus left Jerusalem, he left with papers in hand to persecute and arrest Christians. That's the last they know about him. This is like a member of the SS in Berlin during Hitler's reign coming to the Jewish ghetto and says, I'm one of you. Because Paul comes back to the Christian church, Acts 9, 26 and 27, Saul came to Jerusalem and he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. They're like, no way, you know, you're just going to take names. We're just all going to be arrested, you know, after the Sabbath because you've taken names and now we're recorded. But this is what happens, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul had seen the Lord... The Lord spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Paul wants to come in and join his brothers in the faith, but they're not having it. And so Barnabas plays the role of getting Saul into the new church family. His role of encouragement is to convince others, you got to give this guy a chance. He's not directly encouraging Paul. What he's doing, though, he's acting as his paraclete, his helper, so that he can be accepted into the church fellowship, so that he can be encouraged, and also so that he can exercise his gift, which is, of course, enormous, unique in the life of the early church. But they don't believe it initially. So Barnabas's role as helper or encourager is getting someone else to be accepted in the family of faith. No small deal. Now, it doesn't stop there. And and my affections go actually far, far more to the second story than the first. Um, John Mark, this, this story is picked up in Acts 15, 36 through 41. But John Mark is younger cousin to Barnabas. And John Mark goes with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now, the text does not give us the specifics. All we know is he, he deserts them, he forsakes them. He's with them one moment, and then he's not. Doesn't tell us why, doesn't tell us what the excuse is. As Paul and Barnabas are entertaining a second missionary journey to go back to the churches they'd already started, John Mark is the sticking point. Verse 37, Acts 15, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
Paul's like, hold on, Barnabas. Yes, he may be your cousin, but last time out, this is not, did not end well. We've got to have somebody we can depend on, and we cannot depend on John Mark. He's your cousin. You want to bring him along. I get it, but it's not happening. Can't count on him. He's a failure. He's failed us in the past. We're not bringing him on now. Verse 39, there rose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. That's his hometown. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, this, this is a fair question to ask. So, uh, we don't read about Barnabas anymore in Acts. So, his role with Paul, with advancing the gospel, planting churches, preaching the gospel where it hasn't been preached before, establishing churches in new portions of their own empire, it's done. As far as we know, it's over. And it's fair to ask, was that the right move? Was that the right move? Because it looks like Barnabas just left the major leagues to coach a minor league pitcher that's not ready for the major leagues. Was that smart? Was that wise? And the text is clear. It says uh, Paul and Silas were commended by the brothers. Maybe that means Barnabas wasn't. Maybe that means it was a mistake on Barnabas to leave Paul to encourage John Mark. What do you think? That's a fair question, by the way. I'm not even answering that question. Was it a mistake is a fair question. So Barnabas was determined to help Mark overcome past failures so he could fulfill God's purposes for his life. And just as Timothy would carry on the ministry of Paul, what you find is Mark will end up carrying on the role of Barnabas. Barnabas's investment and encouragement in the life of Mark proved to be an immensely good thing. So later in life, and again, the specifics are not given. None of this is recorded in Acts. Or what, what did this look like? But we know from Colossians 4.10 and Philemon 24 that John Mark was with Paul during portions of his Roman imprisonment. John Mark was with the guy who said he can't come with us. Later in life, he was with him. In fact, not only that, but 2 Timothy 4.11, and this is the end of Paul's life in prison, in a Roman prison, he writes Timothy, his personal protege, and he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So the guy Paul wouldn't have at one moment, later in life, he's very useful to me for ministry. Mark also became a key helper, paraclete, to the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5.13, Peter gives his readers greetings from Mark. This is the same person. The gospel of Mark is assumed to be John Mark's retelling of Peter's gospel. So think of this, put this in context. John Mark became a key helper to the two key apostles of the early church, the New Testament. He authored one of the four gospels in no small part because Barnabas encouraged him and helped him back up to faithfulness. That if you question Barnabas' role in leaving Paul, who didn't need him as much as John Mark needed him, I'd say it looked like a pretty good decision because Mark's future faithfulness was no doubt in no small part contributed because Barnabas invested in him came alongside him, helped him back up to Christ-like faithfulness. Sometimes, sometimes, encouragement is a brief word or a single visit, but what you'll find other times is encouragement to the life of another requires a longer-term 
investment, whether you think of that as discipleship or mentoring, but that sometimes people in your life and mine, they need more than a single word or a prayer. They need someone to come and hang out with them to give them the courage and the direction and the fortitude to go where God wants them to go. It was Barnabas's role of encourager in the life of John Mark that helped the minor league player make it to the majors. Uh, I want to make this a little bit more personal as we wind down. Uh, who has encouraged me? If you just think for a minute, look back on your own life. Hopefully this isn't hard. I hope that we all feel like we've been encouraged at some point. If I look back and I say there have been significant or at least memorable times when someone else came up and encouraged me, who was that? Who was it? And what did it look like? And this on the positive side. So someone encouraged me and, and I was better for it. They wanted to encourage me. They came up and I was better for their encouragement. How did they do that? How did they go about that? What did that look like? You might have negative examples. Someone thought they were trying to encourage me and this is what they did. And it was not encouraging. And you can say, that's not the way I want to encourage someone else either. But I can look back and say, Positive or negative, this is what encouragement in my life has looked like. These are cues I can take as I would go to encourage others. Ask this question too. Who would point to us, to you, to me, as a source of encouragement? Would anyone? Would anyone point to you and me and say, as they rifle through their memories, they go through their file cabinet and think of times places, people that God has encouraged them through someone else, would anyone say we were their source of encouragement? And if they didn't, what would that say about the life of Christ in us, the faithfulness of the life of Christ in us? If no one else would say, well, they were my encouragement, what might that say? Uh, here's something along that line. Do we make ourselves available to give and receive encouragement? Back to the beginning of the message, if you don't know other people well and they don't know you, giving and receiving encouragement is probably not going to happen. There's a transparency issue here. There's a knowledge issue. There's a relationship issue here. She so asks questions like, am I in a small group? Am I in my home group? Am I in a prayer group, a Bible study group where people know me and I know them? Do I come to service early and stay late just so I can get to know others? They can get to know me. Do I invite or do I go out with others for coffee or whatever just to sit down and chat? In other words, do I cultivate the relationships in which encouragement is likely to be had, either to be had or to be given? If the relationships aren't there, it's very unlikely that you and I will be on the giving or the receiving end of encouragement. One of the things, too, I'm thrilled about the church meeting in person again is Guys, most encouragement is going to happen face-to-face. -face. Not all, but the most significant encouragement you'll probably find will happen face-to-face. -face. When the church doesn't meet, encouragement is hard to come by. No matter how well-intentioned we are, no matter how much electronic uh, whatever means we use of communication, nothing can replace that. And last question along this line. If those who know us well, if they gave us a nickname, what might it be? So Barnabas is known for encouragement. We know him by his nickname. If someone gave us a nickname, they know us well, they know something about us, what might those options be? What, what comes to your mind as you think what your appearance to others might be? I would not be called the son of encouragement. I know that, and I'm okay with that. I'm working on it. I do work on it.
but I know that would not be my nickname. But what might someone else that knows us well, what, what kind of description would be attached to us based on a knowledge of what's really key and true about us or our life? What kind of nickname? Would it be positive? Would it be negative? Would it attach anything to Christ's likeness in us? Good question to think about. I want to close with uh, reading something brief. Uh, Eva Rose York uh, practiced encouragement. She also wrote about it. She was born in 1858 in Canada. As she came to faith, she was a musician. She married. Uh, marriage didn't last long. She was widowed, I think about 10 years of marriage. But she was known personally for her works of encouragement in the life, specifically in the late 1800s and early 1900s, specifically encouraging women. Her name is on because she helped found a training school for women in India in 1922. It bears her name. She also opened a house for unwed mothers in Toronto. So she's this woman who is geared towards helping others, service, acts of service, helping others, particularly women. The reason I knew her for many, many decades was because of a poem she wrote. And it's along this same line. The poem she wrote reflects the kind of person she was. If uh, Barnabas was Barnabas, she could have been Bathshebus or something like that, Hebrew. Listen to this, though. These are the last two stanzas of her poem called, by the way, I Shall Not Pass This Way Again. That poem concludes this way. Oh, God. Forgive that now I live as if I might, sometime, return to bless the weary ones that yearn for help and comfort every day, for such there be along the way. O God, forgive that I have seen the beauty only, have not been awake to sorrow such as this, that I have drunk the cup of bliss, remembering not that those there be who drink the dregs of misery. I love the beauty of the scene, would roam again or fields so green, but since I may not, let me spend my strength for others to the end, for those who tread on rock and stone and bear their burdens all alone, who loiter not in leafy bowers, nor hear the birds, nor pluck the flowers, a larger kindness give to me, a deeper love and sympathy. Then, oh, one day may someone say, Remembering a lessened pain, would she could pass this way again. Isn't that good? You know, if you've known someone in your life that was a source of great encouragement and they die or they move away, you're like, oh man, what a loss. Well, that's her point. Does our presence in the lives of each other, does it bring encouragement with it? Are we sources of encouragement, which, remember, is a key element, an aspect of the life of Christ? Is that an aspect of our life? Would others say, I'm encouraged because I know us? It's a good question. Barnabas reflected his nickname. We need to think about that. Father, we thank you that there are Barnabases in this world who are particularly adept, gifted, perhaps we could say called to give encouragement to others, and Lord, we want to learn from them. We want to rub shoulders with folks like that. Help all of us, though, Lord, whatever our spiritual gifts, whatever our backgrounds might be, help us to aspire nobly that the life of Christ expressed in Christ-like encouragement might be more constant in us. Help us, 
like the author of our poet, Lord, to live in such a way that there would be a sense of of some absence of your presence because we weren't there, that Christ's life is seen and magnified in us in the way of encouragement. In Jesus' name and to his honor, amen.